Hey, Feminist Frequency listeners. It is the third week of our year-end fundraising campaign. Today, we announced another reason we need your support, our new male ally education and support efforts. If we're going to tackle sexism and harassment in the gaming industry, men need to be part of the solution. We'll be working with leaders in the field to help change culture and educate men on how to go from being a helpless bystander to an effective, respectful ally. We need your help to make this happen. Go to feministfrequency.com slash donate today and help us face this challenge head on in 2020. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is episode 108, our last episode of 2019. I'm your host, Anita Sarkeesian, and this week we're going to do something a little bit different. Each of us wanted the opportunity to reflect on some of our favorite pieces of media over the last decade, which, wow, let me tell you, is quite the difficult list to distill, but we did our best. So here you go. The Feminist Frequency team's fave five of the last 10 years. Hey, Radioheads, it's Ebony. I'm excited to share my fave fives from the past decade with you. Uh, I am pretty sure none of my selections are going to be surprising or unfamiliar. If you A, listen to the pod regularly, or B, follow me on Twitter, which you should be doing. Uh, but anyways, I'm not changing my answers around just because you monkeys might have heard some of this shit before. Um, like I have a full-time job. I have an intense crafting habit. I have time to invent some obscure references for an end of decade list. So uh, in no particular order, here are my fave five uh, representing luminous gifts from the worlds of literature, film, TV, music, and then some random fifth category I'll come up with at the end, I hope. Here we go. Uh, one, the book most likely to make me give up writing because what the fuck am I even doing uh, is An Unkindness of Ghosts by River Solomon. I know y'all have heard me talk about this before. I'm never going to shut up about it. I have constructed this like gargantuan, teetering edifice of a TBR pile in the last decade probably the last 15 years, to be honest. I can't seem to settle on anything for long. Um, and there's a universe of books I want to get to, things that I want to read, things that I know I need to read. But the fact is, like the way my anxiety is set up, the way my work schedule is set up, the way I'm afraid about like racism, sexism, jack-in-the-boxes popping up <laughs> unexpectedly. Like, I just, I don't know. I don't dig into nearly as much new work as I would like to um, and as I know I should. Um, it's just been easier to like reapply the balm of old friends and favorite books and just immerse myself in worlds that I know, you know, already have space for me. Um, but Something about an unkindness of a ghost called to me. It was probably the the book cover, honestly. Um, so, you know, I picked it up and I read it in like these great gasping bursts. And then I would have to force myself to slow down because I just never wanted it to end. It is a phenomenal novel beyond all description. It is um, a space opera. It's a love story. It's a cry of the heart. It's a rebellion narrative. It's a fable. It's a catalog of horrors. Um, just to to give you the official summary from River Solomon's uh, own website, odd-mannered, obsessive, withdrawn, botanist and healer Aster Gray has little to offer folks in rebuttal when they call her ogre and freak. She's used to the names. She only wishes there was more truth to them. 
If she were truly the monster they accused her of being, she'd be powerful enough to tear down the walls of the HSS Matilda, the generation ship fearing the loss of humanity to a mythical promised land. When a series of blackouts threatens Matilda's voyage, as well as the lonely life Aster has carved out for herself in the slum decks of the ship, she becomes embroiled in a grudge with a brutal overseer bent on bringing her to heel. Aster may have found a way to improve her lot, if she's willing to take him on and sow the seeds of civil war. This book made me dizzy. It set me on fire. I have rarely felt so convinced of the reality and authenticity of a fictional person's interior life. This book stoned me, y'all. It's Go read it. Um, I want to share just real quick, like Amal Almatar's um, review for NPR um, says, River Solomon's An Unkindness of Ghosts is the kind of novel I need to describe in terms of what it did to me. Reading it, I felt it carving out a vastness inside of me, pouring itself into me like so many stars. And the more I read, the bigger I felt, falling down a rabbit hole of sky and wanting only to go deeper and farther with every page. That's exactly how I felt. It's just, this book is phenomenal. Please, please read it. Uh, category two, the I Can See Why Jennifer Lawrence Became a Star Award. Uh, this is given to Winter's Bone, a film from 2010, directed by Deborah Granick. Uh, and based on the book by Daniel Woodrow. Honestly, like Jennifer Lawrence could spend the next 50 years doing Outback Steakhouse commercials, and I still be like, yo, that girl can act. Winner's Bone is set in the rural Ozarks, and I'm obsessed with just like the way these micro regions, not even micro because it's a huge region, but like these communities, these small isolated communities are brought to life in works like this. So Winter's Bone is set in the rural Ozarks of Missouri and Lawrence plays um, Ree Dolly, who's 17 years old, and she has to take care of her mentally ill mother and two younger siblings because her father has jumped bail after a meth arrest. Um, there aren't nearly enough depictions in our media of the way that poverty and isolation can shape a person and a community and a culture. Um, the the people in this movie are just barely scraping by, and yet they have such rich tradition and codes. These are people who hunt for survival, who make do when they can't make a way. You know, they look out for each other and they abide by like these, these strict ethos that are incomprehensible to outsiders, but are as immutable as rock to the people who uphold those traditions. Uh, there is a chill that gets into your bones when you're watching this movie and you watch Re struggle to find her missing father. And it's a chill that sets in your bones and stays there, just daring you to try to exercise it. Uh, the movie also has John Hawks, Garrett Dillahunt, and Dale Dickey. So like, if that doesn't sway you to watch it, I don't know what will. I can't help you. Uh, category number three, the What Do You Want From Me? This is still the best episode of television I've ever seen award goes to Heaven Sent, episode of Doctor Who. Uh, so I wrote about this um, in the Femme Freak Faye Fives back in 2016, and my opinion has not changed. Um, I no longer spend a lot of time parsing which of the various incarnations of the Doctor are my favorite. If it's Doctor Who, I love it. What do you want from me? Uh, having said that, Peter Capaldi is like mind-blowingly amazing as 12, and I'm simply not taking dissenting votes on the matter. You can yeah, email your mama and CC your high school principal. I don't care. I don't care. Um, 
Heaven Sent is an absolutely breathtaking episode of television. And Capaldi carries this entire episode alone. It's hard to convey how terrifying and mournful, but occasionally like bleakly funny this episode is. Uh, Director is um, a really accomplished television director named Rachel Talalay, and she does this remarkable job weaving a tapestry out of light and shadow so that we're never quite certain what's around the next corner. And as the viewer and as the doctor himself come to realize like the staggering reality of his imprisonment, the the episode refracts back on itself in just these really dazzling, beautiful ways. Um, check it out. Even if you're not a Doctor Who fan, it's definitely worth watching. Uh, category four, best dark fae masquerading as a human. Uh, that goes to uh, Andrew Hosier-Byrne. Uh, so listen, at the end of the, you know, year, I check in with Spotify, see what I've been listening to, you know, um, check out stuff that maybe I added and haven't been really given a listen to. But anyways, for the past couple of years, Hosier is like constantly in the top five, uh, according to Spotify anyway. Like I've spent more hours being bewitched by this spooky bastard than is definitely healthy for anybody. The truth is this dude is out here seducing folks to the dark side. Like, I just know it. And you could mess around and surrender to that sensitive Irishman with a beard if you want to, but I know better. Uh, and I'm trying to change things. I guarantee if you fuck around to me, Hosier, in person, he will have you renouncing your earthly life to go two-step in the underworld. Uh, if you listen to his music backwards, I bet it just says, my name is Rumpelstiltskin. Um, in Hosier's attic, there are definitely pictures that prove he's been here before, <laughs> like 1910, 1847, and 1653. So, you know, like I said, do what you want to, but I'm trying to wean myself off because sums up with that dude. Uh, runner up in this category is Gary Clark Jr. Uh, all right. Finally and lastly. I don't really play video games. Y'all know this. Anita and Caro are the ones holding it down for video games for Feminist Frequency. Um, so my opinion on the best game of the past 10 years isn't useful to anyone except other creepy weirdos like me. Um, so take this for what it's worth. But I love Donut Country. It was funny. Um, it didn't make me feel stupid, which a lot of games do. I didn't have to shoot anyone. Uh, and it had trashy raccoons being trashy. So right there, I loved it. Um, if every game was like this, I would get even less work done than I do now, which is not a lot. I like a low pressure game. I don't <laughs> you gotta sue me. Um, anyways, that's it for my fave five, uh, for the decade. It's been great hanging out with all of you radioheads over the past couple of years. Can't wait to talk to you again in 2020. Talk to you soon. Remember, Feminist Frequency can only do this important work because of supporters like you. Add some fuel to our fire today by going to feministfrequency.com slash donate and pledge a gift that will make a real positive impact. Hey everyone, Carolyn here, and this is my fave five for the 2010s. A quick caveat that this isn't a set in stone a definitive list of my absolute top five things, period, for the entire decade. There's simply far too much 
stuff from any decade for me to narrow it down to five things and say that these are absolutely my favorites. Uh, But these are all certainly uh, among the things that I adored the absolute most from this decade. Um, And if you were to ask me again next week, um, my answers might be slightly different, but all of these things would definitely be be very near the top um, at any point in time. Let me start with a quick honorable mention to the wonderful Black Mirror episode, San Junipero. More than just a fun and clever sci-fi love story, San Junipero is a story of an older person finding love for the first time, long after we often think of love as having passed people by. I think we need more unconventional narratives like this about love that tell love stories that don't fit the traditional mold and that recognize that Many people have lived lives that have kept them from experiencing the traditional hallmarks of romantic love. Number five, Museum Hours. Museum Hours might be the ultimate example of what we often refer to on the podcast as the Caro movie. Uh, This is a 2012 film written and directed by Jem Cohen, and it's about two characters, Johan and Anne. Johan is a guard at an art museum in Vienna. Anne is a Canadian woman who comes to Vienna when a relative of hers is hospitalized. Uh, She meets Johan at the museum, and the two start spending time together as Johan shows Anne around his city and accompanies her on visits to the hospital. Throughout the film, Johan and Anne's small, ordinary lives are lifted up, and The art in the museum reminds us that we are just living one chapter in the ongoing saga of humanity, and that those who came before lived with as much passion and pain and immediacy as we live right now. Museum Hours may not seem like an overtly feminist film, and and I certainly didn't pick the five things on this list because I thought they were the most feminist, but because I um, just adored them the most. but. In my view, films that dramatize and honor the lives of so-called ordinary people are valuable for reasserting our focus away from the world of bombastic corporate entertainment and back on the world in which we all really live. Number four, Twin Peaks, The Return. In 2017, Trump's presidency, still in its early months, was a waking nightmare for me. And in this nightmare, the unrelenting boldness of Twin Peaks The Return was art at its most essential, art that shook me awake from the nightmare, that slapped me across the face, dunked my head in buckets of cold water, and reminded me that I was alive. Number three, Call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name is a work of cinematic sorcery. Director Luca Guadagnino doesn't just show you the long, lazy summer of 83. He conjures it. He takes you there, letting you feel the rhythm of its days. Timothy Chalamet gives a remarkable performance as Elio, and the film observes with such insight and honesty the ways in which he is transformed by his desire for grad student Oliver. Call Me By Your Name understands the particular intensity of youthful love and desire, 
Elio watching Oliver dance one night to Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs is the kind of movie scene that feels like it was lifted right out of someone's authentic memories. And because of that power and beauty, it can become part of our collective memories as well. Blessed be the mystery of love indeed. Number two, Butterfly Soup. Butterfly Soup is accurately billed by its creator as a visual novel about gay Asian girls playing baseball and falling in love. What makes creator Brianna Lay's game so remarkable is how vividly realized those characters are, how much they feel like real people, and how naturally and effortlessly the game runs the emotional gamut from the depths of insecurity and the pain of being attacked by your own family just for being who you are, to the exuberance of finding people with whom you belong and the joy of being seen, valued, and loved for who you are. It's also one of the most laugh-out-loud funny games in recent memory, and Dia and Min are one of gaming's all-time great duos. When my friend, the critic Tevis Thompson, called Butterfly Soup the best game of 2017, he wrote, While the world burns, people are still falling in love, still flailing about, still becoming. This is the most honest, hilarious, perfectly realized game about what we're fighting for. This, too, is resistance. Number one. The Americans. The Americans, which ran for six seasons on FX starting in 2013, told the story of Elizabeth and Philip Jennings, Russian spies in deep cover living as a quote-unquote ordinary family near Washington, D.C. The Americans was a remarkable portrayal of a marriage between two people whose lives were immensely complicated by the fact that they constantly had to pretend to be other people. Yet for all the identity games they always had to play, they probably knew each other better than so many couples do. Because so many couples fall into playing roles for each other. The idea of the husband, the wife, the partner. But with all the performing and pretending they were doing elsewhere all the time, with each other, Philip and Elizabeth could often truly be themselves. The show is a fascinating exploration of identity, trust, and devotion. And the struggles the characters encounter typically come not from villains, but from the oppressive systems in which those characters exist. Systems which force them to deny parts of themselves and to live limited lives. If liberation is ever to be found, it won't be found by killing some bad guy somewhere. It will be found by remaking the world into a place where we can all be more free. Hey, it's Anita here. Wow, this was a really daunting task. I couldn't possibly only pick five things that I loved in a whole decade of media, especially one as exploding with so many possibilities as this one has. So what I did was try to pick something from different categories, TV, film, games, etc. And, uh, you know, this is what I came up with. So for television, I chose Halt and Catch Fire. 
Halting Catch Fire is one of those shows that got overlooked by too many, though it's a small miracle that it survived at all into four seasons. It could have been sunk by its awkward mouthful of a title or had viewers bounce off of its more traditional first season, but Halt eventually found its way to being one of our greatest television gems, and I hope it gets a second life. Much like The Leftovers, which I discussed on our live episode from Geek Girl Con, Halt left me aching when it was over. I know a program has sunk its claws into me when I stay up late after watching the season finale, reading Twitter for hours and any reviews I can find, when I'm still thinking about these characters and what they've been through and how I hope they'll be okay as if they're my friends and family. To me, that resonance, that longevity, the intensity of attachment is what makes a show more than just a program. Those are the qualities that make media so valuable to us. Connection, engagement, emotion. I bet in meetings, Halt was pitched as the Mad Men for tech. It's slick, beautiful, and every single creative aspect pulls you into this time capsule. But the show began by being about two brilliant men. As a precursor to today's tech bros trying to build a personal computer, and while I enjoyed the premise and the snapshot of tech in its nascent days, it wasn't exactly something I would have ever put on my favorites list. It was in the second season when the show really took off. The two female characters from season one really started to shine, a theme that continues until the series' end. A theme that continues until the series' end. Cameron, the tech genius, and Donna, also a genius, but relegated to housewife in season one, both start an online gaming company, Mutiny. Each season takes a different big tech development, whether it's hardware, games, message boards, online sales, search engines. And while the show goes to great lengths to be as historically accurate and technologically accurate as possible, what this and every good show does is center the human. The relationships between these characters and their relationships to their work. The technology is really just a backdrop to the humans behind the tech. We join in their excitement of developing new ways for people to connect through their computers. Halt doesn't shy away from discussing and criticizing sexism, even in the early days of tech, whether it manifests in not being taken seriously as a female programmer, not being able to attain investment money, or having to endure mocking, degrading comments all while trying to build technology that will transform the world. Next, I want to get into some music. So I chose Lemonade by Beyonce. The majority of what I would pick for this kind of list are things that hit me on a purely emotional level. They put me into a particular state where the analytical part of my brain quiets down and my heart takes over. That's what happened with Beyonce's Lemonade. As someone who was never that into Beyonce's music in the past, I remember turning on the much-hyped video for this new album just out of collective curiosity and being immediately mesmerized. Lemonade is an epic album that explores Beyonce's heartache and pain through such an eclectic array of different musical directions that it's outstanding hearing them all come together so beautifully, as if they were always meant to be played side by side. And if the music itself wasn't enough, the accompanying film is a masterpiece— There have been smart criticisms of some of the representations in Lemonade, but putting that aside, this album is so incredibly outstanding as to outshine anything around it. This masterpiece made me want to create. I wanted to make incredible art. I had no idea what that would be, but I saw this and felt so deeply inspired in a way little else has ever made me feel. For my book entry, I chose Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. 
So Anne Lackey wrote the critically acclaimed and best-selling debut novel series Ancillary Justice when she was a stay-at-home mom well into her 40s without any published work to her name. The trilogy explores a sci-fi universe through the eyes of a sentient AI ship called Justice of Torin. But the ship looks human because Breck, the protagonist, is a human ancillary that was part of the ship before the ship was destroyed and she was the only living piece left. Look, it's just, it's a whole brilliant thing and you should just, you should read it. Most notably, the ancillary series takes our binary notions of gender and forces us to confront them. The dominant culture which Breck was built from only recognizes one gender and refers to everyone as she. While a variety of gender expressions are encouraged and allowed in this universe, everyone's just got the same pronoun. This becomes prominent when Breck engages with other cultures, and as we follow her internal dialogue about making sure that she doesn't misgender others in their own cultures, we're reminded of just how much we ascribe to gender ourselves. However, this is just a tiny reason why I love this series so much. Lecky's character and world-building are astonishing and captivating. She confidently carries us through a complicated and intriguing political landscape and makes us feel deeply attached to the rebellious and singularly focused protagonist who is fighting for justice, whether it's for the people she loves or the people she sees suffering at the hands of a bureaucratic, monarchy-style dictatorship. For my movie pick, I chose Only Lovers Left Alive, which was a limited-run arthouse film released in 2013 by Jim Jarmusch. And before I saw it, I thought it had everything I would hate. Uh, One, I'm half and half with arthouse films because sometimes they end up being Carol movies that just bore me to tears. And two, it was about vampires. And if I'm going to be honest, the mid-aughts Twilight obsession kind of ruined vampires, if not forever, at least then for the foreseeable future. But for me, this movie moved beyond these simple, easy-to-judge elements into something that made me actually feel things. I don't entirely know why or how, but the film was so captivating that I have never been able to forget it. Only Lovers Left Alive stars Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton as Adam and Eve, long, long-time vampire lovers who are off doing their own thing. Tom is in Detroit, sequestered in his clustered home, creating and listening to music and sitting in judgment of the modern world, while Tilda Swinton is reading, learning, and spending time with an old friend in Tangier. The fact that they are vampires isn't really super significant. It provides a bit of drama and conflict, but more importantly, it elicits the deep emotional contemplation of what it means to survive for so long in a chaotic world that feels like it's constantly going in the wrong direction. Oh, and the soundtrack. Oh boy, the soundtrack is everything. I always have it on my phone no matter where I go. I've spent countless overnight flights not being able to sleep and just listening to it on repeat. The songs are performed primarily by Jarmusch's band Squirrel, and the film's score is by uh, Josef van Weissen. Apologies if I said your name wrong. The soundtrack ends with an incredible performance by Lebanese vocalist um, Yasmin Hamdan, who is briefly featured in the film as well. Years later, I still think about this movie, less about the specific details and more about how it made me feel, being in that universe for a couple hours and seeing the world through these centuries-old eyes. And last but not least, video games. All right, so on the Geek Girl Con episode, I talked about how important I think Gone Home is as a game from this decade. But Keeping on the theme of games that made me feel, there are a few platformers that sucked me in and I could not stop playing or thinking about either of them until I was done. 
That would be guacamole one and two, as well as gato robato. These aren't big, heavy, thinky games. They don't have a huge, deep message. In fact, I would argue that the first guacamole was definitely problematic in a lot of areas. But there is something about a perfectly crafted Metroidvania platformer that I just can't get enough of. Guacamole by Drinkbox Studios takes us to a gorgeous world inspired by Mexican mythologies and Day of the Dead rituals. The game, while not easy, does ease players into the mechanics, allowing you to really get the hang of one moveset before it introduces the next and the next. Gato Robato by Doinksoft is very much just Metroid with a Gap protagonist, and I'm so here for it. They nailed the tone, the experience, the mechanics. I'm not a completionist by any stretch of the imagination, but I 100%ed this game because I just didn't want it to end. While I don't play as many games as I'd like these days, there are a few like these that just grab that part of my brain and suck me into such a joyful obsession and satisfaction that they serve to remind me of just how special gaming is as a medium. So very quickly, I want to honorably mention a couple of things. Phantom Thread, If Beale Street Could Talk, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and the OJ Made in America ESPN documentary. Thanks so much for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio. You can find us everywhere great podcasts are found. And if you haven't yet, go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review us. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and all the social medias at FemFreak. This show is engineered by Rob Para. Carrie Stimson provides technical support, artwork by Jamie Varon, and our intro music is by Phil Circus. We'll be back on January 8th with another feminist dive into pop culture. Thanks so much for listening.